It was that striking that perfect balance, the nexus of art and science. The science is the math and the data and the technology, and the art is what you do with it. So how you can turn that into value and get it adopted and get it to a place where people can use it and it can enrich their lives and make them more successful. Um, that there was something to that that just really hit home with me and, and made me feel like that was like a purpose where I could really deliver value and, and make an impact. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Danny Giandomenico, founder of Ixis, a rapidly scaling company dedicated to helping their clients revolutionize their relationships with data. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Bradbury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Danny, hi. Sam, hi. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. We got an introvert on the podcast today, Dave. <laughs> so I could tell by the distance to the microphone. So, <laughs> right, it's it's a, a visual cue. But maybe hey, mistakes. Right? No, we're just gonna chat. You're you're one of my most impressive entrepreneurs I've met in our area over these years. So thank you for making time to come chat. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Dave almost cried, I think. He was so excited that you I was waiting coming. up front, like, you know, like the puppy that's just outside, like, oh, I hope someone comes, comes here today, right? <laughs> we're, we're excited to have you, Danny. And, and again, thank you for doing the Female Founders Series with us this past fall. There's so many people that come up to us afterwards, and we're, like, so excited to hear your story. And so... Um, we're excited to sit down and just get a one-on-one today. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And yeah. that was fun. I really enjoyed doing the female founders piece. So thank you for having me. Hell yeah. For that as well. Hell yeah. Awesome. Um, we'll have you in the audience in season seven coming Ooh, up. Good one. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. We're going to start real basic here. Okay. What is Ixis? What is Ixis? Um, Ixis is a data and analytics company. We're basically a data tech company. We integrate a lot of our clients' disparate data sources and model all that data. Uh, We feed that back through a visualization tool that we built. And then on top of that is a communications layer to help um, the app bring that functionality to the client so that they can communicate cross departments, cross agency, um, and have conversations about their data. So bringing the data to where the business decisions are happening and the conversations are taking place. Amazing. So what problem do they come to you with, typically? Um, they're all over the map based on whatever strategic objectives they have. Um, if they're trying to um, strategically move from being predominantly wholesale to predominantly direct-to-consumer, mm-hmm. they're trying to bolster their e-commerce sales or their lifetime value. It could be customer analytics-driven. It could be the integration of their media data to get media efficiencies. Um, it's really a very broad spectrum. Wow. Big wow. stuff, though, like big problems. It, sounds <laughs> like. it seems like Ixis makes their customers look really smart through all the hard work you do, right? Is that, I, I like that. I'd sign up for that product, Sam. Right? I think that, you know, I think anytime you can lean on data, you know, it's, it's going to really enhance the conversation. It's going to enhance the optic of what you're trying to see and what kind of change you're trying to, to make happen. And make their decisions easier, right? When mm-hmm. you see the data behind it, I, I think it's a lot easier to, you know, okay, we, we do have to spend here or whatever it may be. Yeah, I think you can go from kind of anecdotal to more empirical evidence to help you make more choiceful strategies 
and achieve your objectives. Um, a lot of times it's just about getting the data to the conversation. It's mm -hmm. not always about deep, complex analyses, although sometimes it is. Um, but sometimes if the data were just more available, it'd be a lot easier to get people on the same page and, and try to make change happen. That sounds really satisfying. <laughs> it is. It can be. Yeah. You know, I think it's also, it has a lot of complexities to it also. But um, once you get it right, it is really satisfying. So can we go back to like the beginning and we'll talk about little Danny and what <laughs> shaped you and how did you end up in this seat as CEO and founder of a company? Like, could you share a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah. I mean, how far back do you want to go? That could get pretty it's boring. It's your time. It can get pretty boring. Um, I doubt that. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know. I guess, um, well, you, I guess you're asking about law school. You want me to go all the way back? Yeah, well, I, I noticed that you, you went to SUNY in Plattsburgh undergrad. You, yeah. you uh, went to law school for a bit. Um, did you ever want to be an entrepreneur? Was that always a dream of yours growing up? No, absolutely not. What did you want to do? I didn't really know. Um, I went to SUNY. My dad was a professor there, and he had four girls. He wanted doctors, lawyers, and engineers. So we all became that. <laughs> no pressure anything, right? We all became right? that. Yeah, we fulfilled that duty. Um, but I think what he was trying to do is just to make sure that we had choices and we could grow, grow up and um, not be limited by not having enough um, made the right decisions in the time that was necessary to make them to open up opportunity for ourselves. What was your like role of being one of four girls? I'm just curious. That's such a fun dynamic, I'm sure. Yeah, I was the youngest. So Hell I was, yeah, I was the I'm the youngest to too. <laughs> uh, so it was good. A lot of mentors in that, you know, yeah. seeing a lot of uh, different paths and choices that they made. Um, but that was, you know, really great to also have that sisterly bond. Um, it didn't always come easily. It was usually a little bit later in life that we formed that. But um, that was really wonderful to grow up in, in a big family. Yeah. Um, especially with my dad keeping us all very driven. Um, so I guess that's kind of how I I went to that level of um, entrepreneurship. It wasn't that I set out to do that, but I was always that kind of work ethic and that drive was embedded in who I was. Um, so I could always kind of default to that anytime I wasn't sure what I wanted to do I just kept working harder awesome and so at what point like does a hard-working driven you know youngest of four with obviously three very successful siblings like at what point in law school like what was the sort of catalyst to be like this isn't right and I need to go another direction yeah I should probably preface that by saying I dropped out of law school so <laughs> there's that um, but I, I just had to go by a gut, like something just didn't feel right. And I knew that as hard as I was going to work, I had to have my heart in it. Totally. If I wasn't driven by something like some kind of purpose, something bigger than myself and just that toil and that effort of, you know, just believing and working hard, I had to also believe in what that work output was going to derive. Um, and something just didn't feel like it was me, like maybe I was doing it out of like a duty that I was, you know, trying to make my dad happy maybe or, or fulfill a duty that I thought was imposed upon me. But I knew I wouldn't be able to self-actualize if I didn't believe in my craft. So Right. That's a lot of a lot of work if you're not if your heart's not in it's it. A, it's a really brave decision and 
And did you end up, you ended up back here in Burlington at a, a great startup back in the day, Epic One, Epic right? One, yeah. With Dave Winslow and Alec and Catroni. <laughs> like, my gosh, it was a, a crew. How did you end up there? Uh, well, when you make a decision to drop out of law school, it's, you kind of don't, you get a little lost. There's no way to kind of not go through a tough period after something like that because you don't know, you, don't, you, you know what you don't want, what you don't want to do, but that doesn't mean you know what you want to do. Uh, so I came back, my, my parents were still here, and I came back temporarily, quote unquote, uh, to try to figure out and, and reorient myself. And then I met those guys, I think at like the Chamber of Commerce or something, or through other people, I can't remember. And Amazing. they were starting Epic One at the time. And they're like, so you went to law school, can you read these contracts for us? And I was, <laughs> like, on, really? oh, I I was like, you can definitely do better than me on that one. Um, but we just started meeting and talking and having conversations and... Um, I think it just seemed like a fit. And at the time I was like, well, they were starting out on, they had worked in this um, technology called Urchin and Google had just bought it and renamed it Google Analytics and analytics was about to take off. And you'd, you'd have to be blind not to see that this was a very pivotal moment, that this was an industry in its nascency that was not born yet, but you know, about to happen. And I was just kind of, taken by that. There was just something about it I couldn't pass up. I had to see it through. And I felt like it was right place, right time. Like mm. there had to be a reason that I just kind of fell into this opportunity. And so I said temporarily I would stay here in Burlington because I was not up for just sign up for the rest of my life with these winters. Um, but that is indeed what happened. And so I stayed around and then Epic really took off. And what did your role look like there? I was uh, kind of, I'll call it the creative director of data. I would say that it, Google was trying to figure out how to evangelize analytics because no one really knew. At the time, analytics was owned by, uh, Urchin was, I think, one of the only tools out there. And it was very difficult to set up. It was expensive. Uh, once you had it going, you didn't really know what to do with the data. Uh, Google made that very plug and play. So you could kind of plug in with Google Analytics and all this data would spin out, but you wouldn't really know exactly what to do with it. So I was in there trying to figure out, you know, like we probably need statisticians and we need probably people who can work with the data, model it, figure out how to put it to and align it to the business problems we're trying to solve. Um, so that was kind of step one. And that was easier in that day because social media didn't happen. Smartphones weren't around. There weren't all these myriad disparate data systems. There was really one. First, it was mm -hmm. just analytics. And the goal then was, you know, we had all these media and advertising agencies that didn't have really any data to keep them accountable. So that was our big goal. It was like, how are we going to measure media data and measure advertising for the first time and then measure any digital behaviors? Um, but then as other data systems started coming up on the scene, it got more complex, but it also got more interesting. Mm. And the more you unfolded it, the more you had this like power you could unlock in the data. And then if you, when you got it right, you got real mileage out of that analysis it started changing the lexicon of how people would think and talk about their data and the problems they were trying to solve, getting them to work closer together and, and understanding kind of what, what their true north was. And at that point, you know, we saw we had something really viable here in terms of a skill set and capability set to build a company. And then um, we sold that company. So we were, we were definitely on to something. They sold to dealer.com, right? Did. And went to work there. Yeah. And... Uh, how many years were you at dealer? Two, almost to the day. 
Yeah. Did, you, did you quit on your second anniversary? Uh, I quit on the third anniversary of my first job. I just didn't want to grow old there, and I left. <laughs> it was more aligned to a vesting schedule, but something like that. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Wait, um, can I take a step back? What did you study in undergrad? Uh, chemistry and English literature. So there was an element of kind of like what? understanding Who is this the, person? Like, the art and the science. Sam, we're so small. I know. It, it's like just stunning. So what, like, do you think, I'm just so curious of like, obviously just hearing your experience at Epic One, like you're speaking with so much passion about data, right? Mm -hmm. It's so like, where do you think that came from? Like, was it just seeing that problem and being able to solve it at the time? Or do you think something in your background sort of triggered that? It was that striking that perfect balance, the nexus of art and science. Because yeah. the science is the math and the data and the technology, and the art is what you do with it. So how you can turn that into value and get it adopted and get it to a place where people can use it and it can enrich their lives and make them more successful. Um, that There was something to that that just really hit home with me and, and made me feel like that was like a purpose where I could really deliver value and, and make an impact. So I just Have followed it. Have you written it. a book yet? Because no. you, Ooh. right? Doesn't that sound like the- for, Like one of those for dummies books? <laughs> <laughs> like data for dummies? Oh my God, please, Danny, do it. I'll write it forward. <laughs> I am the customer. Do you think there was something to like that enticed you about it being kind of the beginning of an industry? Like, do you think that was part of the catalyst of what was exciting you? Yeah, it was like there was no blueprint. You know, like, I, there was no uh, prescription of, like, how to do it or what needed to be done. You were kind of feeling your way yeah. and, and creating a new space. And you could take it as far as, you know, as much as you put into it was was basically you, you were your only limitation. And I liked that freedom, that trailblazing kind of energy, the frenetic, vital energy that came with, like, there's no end to what we can create here. Sounds like a startup. Yeah. yeah. Do you still have that feeling with Ixis today? In terms of that energy of creating and pushing it? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the downside to it is there's so many kind of like different subject matter expertise that have to play into that. You need engineers, technology, you need data scientists, strategists, you need media. Um, there's just analysts like there's all kinds of different disciplines that play into it and the more those disciplines overlap the more there's that alchemy um, that makes it hard for you to be displaced in, in your market right so that's kind of like the creative aspect of it the downside is it takes a really long time to skill up because you're not only skilling up and kind of what you come in and plug in and know how to do but then you you have to understand all of these other disparate subject matter expertise and you don't just like come in at Ixis and hit the ground running. It's a good one to two year, like steep learning curve. And it takes a lot of tenacity and fortitude. Like you have to have that passion and drive to abate that and to overcome it or you defect and you kind of, you know, think uh, it's not for you. So, I mean, that, first of all, thank you, because I feel like there are so many companies that just are really impatient with that process. And so I'm curious, maybe for other founders out there, like, how did you kind of identify that, okay, this is going to take a while to like get people up to speed. And like, how do you know, like, what do you look for in a person to know that they have that fire? Um, 
So how did I identify? I identified it by having done it myself and learning the different subject matter areas in as much as you can. You know, I'm not going to go and, you know, become a software engineer, but I'm going to understand enough to know how to adapt, you know, to that subject matter in order to understand it enough to see it fit. So having done it, I'm not, I wasn't one of those CEOs that kind of was just the, the pitch and we didn't start out pre-revenue and have a pitch deck and go get investors. We, we started out by doing we actually were bootstrapped for the majority of our tenure. Um, so that I just knew because I had done it myself in terms of, what was the second part of the question? Well, just when, you know, knowing that, how do you kind of hire? I guess I didn't, ask, I didn't really ask, but like, what do you look for in someone if it's not just a skill set? There's got to be more to it, right? If it's that long of a process to get up to speed. I mean, I think the main thing is like, you, you look for people who either love the work or the, or they love the money, and if they love the work, you know that they're gonna they're gonna make it. If they're just in it for the money, they're not gonna make it. Yeah. So they have to be they have to have something kind of more fulfilling in in what they're getting out of that position or that job that is driving them. And if it's just about the comp and it's just about like they're negotiating down to the penny and they're trying to play offers off of each other. It, you just you're not driven by the subject matter of the work itself and the like making that mark on an industry. So can you tell by like the type of questions they ask? Yeah, I haven't always gotten it right. Yeah. No, you can't always tell. Yeah. Because part of it is what you purport to be, and 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 you can say all the right things, and then when you, it's also hard to explain like how complex it gets. Right. So you really have to see like when the rubber hits the road, like, and then that becomes about fortitude and grit and like that's a whole other level of skill set those are like emotional intelligence and understanding kind of like how to how to control what like it's a roller coaster you have to decide when and when not to get on like what's worth it and if you get on every time and you're having all of like feeling all of those feels right when it gets hard um, you're not going to have that intestinal fortitude to keep going. Mm -hmm. You're going to want to get off. So, and as you, when you're small, it's easier because you can have those conversations and be there for each other. But as you get bigger as a company, you know, if you're not really connected to the culture and to the people, it becomes harder to catch that and create like that deep fabric for people to have like an, enough of that support system. And then that becomes invariably more difficult with COVID and having it be remote. You know, it's not an easy thing to solve. But for the most part, you know, I think we've taken whatever steps we can to try to make it um, as, as easy for people as possible to, to tough it out for however long they need to or want to. And then eventually they get over that um, hard, uh, that hard time or whatever. What am I trying to say? And they get, and they get, they get like yeah. the golden T-shirt. <laughs> well, then they become I've really. Arrived. Then they just become really badass, right? And then it's like you do everything you can to try to make them as happy as possible. And, yeah. You know, try to. How many right people do you employ today? We're around thirty-five. Thirty-five. Wow. Um, and how has that been trying to scale? I don't, actually, they here in Vermont. Are you just remotely uh, hiring people? Uh, I think. I wish I knew. I'd say we're probably. Less than half are maybe in Vermont now. I'm not really sure. It was half for a while, but I'm not sure where we landed in the last two years of hiring. Right. 
And I, is that a good thing? I mean, was that your preference? Was it just to find the talent that you needed wherever they wanted to live? Or was it to sort of get in a different environments that had different perspectives and different curiosities and skills? Like, I think in the, when, you know, we really, when we were all in on site, we really wanted it to be in Vermont and grow it in Vermont. And we had these kinds of like, and you packed them into that space too, if I recall, we right? We did. We're right? looking to move into a really big space and then try to hire and relocate people uh, to Vermont. It was a really big initiative of ours. And then COVID happened and that changed everything for us. Um, and then we kept trying to move into that space a couple times and then Delta, and then Omicron. And eventually it was just like, well, maybe we just need to call a spade a spade and stay remote. And then somewhere along that kind of revelation, we just started hiring more and more remote because then it was about moving as fast as we can to build the technology and keep developing the data science models and making sure that we were scaling um, against the company's needs. We couldn't kind of hold you know, on the hiring to make sure that we were you know, pre-specifying location and making sure Especially if those first remote folks are working out, right? That it's kind of hard to draw a line in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to take another step back. I know we're kind of jumping over the all over the place, but that's the reality of a startup, right? It's it's not a linear. <laughs> not a linear Mostly situation. I'm intimidated, so I'm I'm a little nervous. Dave, myself. I can see that. Yeah, you're just a little yeah. sweaty on the forehead I, there. I literally, I get my Ted Lasso shirt on and everything. Try to like you know. <laughs> Get it together, but yeah. you better take this down. Yeah, I'm going to take it. I'm going to let you off the hook. Um, so let's walk us through sort of the start of the company. So you left Dealer. Like, did you immediately start Nexus, or what was that sort of transition like, and what was, like, the impetus of starting it? Um, well, I didn't just leave Dealer. I changed the nature of the employment contract, so I still consulted for them. Okay. So it was a very amicable split. I think the, the main thing there was I just didn't want to focus on the automotive industry solely. Mm -hmm. Data was doing all these great things and the times were changing. And so as these new data systems were coming onto the scene, if I had just isolated kind of that optic to, to auto, it would have closed out my knowledge of everything that retail was doing in these other industries. So it was more about Smart. that than it was about, you know, like just taking the dealer.com job for what it was. I enjoyed that But you position. didn't want to leave this the opportunity on the table. No, because before dealer, we, were, we worked with all industries and really cool brands. And Google put us into a whole host of Fortune 500 companies. Right, you were like one said, of eight or something, that, you know, yeah. the, whatever the blessed term was yeah. back then. Yeah. yeah, we got anointed. We were lucky. Um, but the ability to work with like Home Depot and Mattel and all of these cool brands doing cool things with data... Um, I just didn't want to lose that opportunity. But Dealer was great, too, because we started to work with a lot of OEMs and a lot mm -hmm. of automakers and just seeing the kind of problems with traversing different tiers from the dealership to kind of how all that works. That was a really interesting problem from a data perspective to be made to solve. So all worth it. Yeah. And, you know, I think folks that try to understand the the sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem in Burlington, like... There are many entrepreneurs that were sort of born and bred at Dealer, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the ownership structure, um, but other folks as well that weren't owners. Do you? Is there something that you can kind of point to of like 
what maybe inspired that entrepreneurial spirit from Dealer? Um, I think it's just nice to have big companies operating in in small spaces or I guess small, like one industry especially, is you've got all these cross-functional people that are trying to solve similar problems from different perspectives mm. and it creates this great creative energy. Yeah. And that when you start to see what that collaboration is like, one thing that I think we're missing in a remote setting, frankly, like that's the downside of everyone being remote. At Dealer, we're all kind of like piled on top of each other and we would all like get into these war rooms and everything felt like really vital. Um, and then you just kind of don't want to stop or limit it to that scope so if you're moving on, or I think at the time, dealer had sold into dealer track or Cox, I can't remember. So when you're kind of moving on in situations, you don't want to stop based on just what the needs are of that company. Right. You want to expand your horizons and kind of go out and, and keep that energy going. And so I think that that is more what it has to do with. I think having bigger companies in, in the state is something that I think would, that would spawn a lot of that energy. So friggin' well said. I've been wanting to ask that question. You friggin' nailed it. Yeah. Right? Oh my totally, god. Totally, totally nailed it. Um, so I mean you I I'm gonna jump. Sorry, Dave. I'm excited over here. You can see I'm gonna <laughs> jump out of my chair. Um, yeah, I'll just hang. <laughs> You're not going anywhere, <laughs> I'm good. right? I'm good. Um, I just I was curious, like, because you talked about how you kind of like couldn't help but be excited about all these other industries. Like, who are your customers today? Like, what industries do you touch? Is it, and, and are they of a, customers of a certain size? Or how do you sort of pick and choose? Because I'm sure it's kind of endless of what, who you could help. Um, we work a lot. Well, we have an auto OEM customer. So we, we work in auto still. Um, we work a lot in retail, luxury retail. I don't know why. I think that's just kind of a smaller space than you realize. That once you kind of penetrate it, they all talk. So when you get one luxury retail brand, they all kind of come knocking. So that happened. Um, we work, we've worked and work a little bit in CPG, but we're basically retail, luxury retail, and a little bit CPG and auto. Um, that's not to say we wouldn't break into hospitality or other sectors. We just haven't really from a tech and data modeling perspective. So you have kind of like fewer larger customers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And is that, do you have to be a certain size company, uh, maybe in revenues or number of customers, in order to get the value of all these data tools and insights? Like, do you have to, is there a minimum threshold that others should be reaching before? No, I think sometimes when we've started with smaller companies, it's, easy, it's been easier because the data are less complex at that point. Like, sometimes they're just starting out and, Maybe it's all Shopify and we have their CMS with their um, CRM and we've got all their data systems kind of integrated already. Um, sometimes we've worked with startups where it was nice because they didn't have too much complexity trying to tease out how their media campaigns were broken out in the past, the historical data. It wasn't they, legacy to sort of deal yeah, with, right? As yeah, as they traverse legacy data systems. And so in a way, it kind of like you start out with a really good baseline and it's really clean to, to test against that and know what changes you're making versus when you come in with a big enterprise-level organization with tons of historicals, there's a lot of bag data baggage, if you will, that comes with that that takes time to reset 
and, and clean up and, and, and restructure. So no, I wouldn't say that there's a size requirement. Um, where do you find like inspiration or advice or know-how as you've gone from sort of starting this off yourself and now employ three dozen plus people? Like, where do you, what do you turn to to learn? Or who? Um, actually, I read a lot of biographies. <laughs> I like cool. to, to um, see kind of like how people have done it. And, and Snare is where it really got very big, you know, yeah. and, and these kind of like leaders or titans of industry is very inspiring for me. Um, so I think when you look at like, how people what it's cost them what they've put in and kind of how they felt like failures along the way but then look back at the impact that they had and the way that they changed the world that's very inspiring for me um so I spent a lot of time um just kind of trying to edify myself in terms of feeling like you put a lot into it you really put a lot of your life into it and especially in this day and age I feel like sometimes there's this whole great resignation and people are saying we don't want to work anymore. We, we want to work for in a way that's more fair and get compensated in a way that's more fair. But when you look at like people who really came before us and made a difference, like I don't know, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Tesla, all the way up to RGB or uh, Warren Buffett, Bezos, Musk, these guys didn't say like, well, I don't, I don't want to work hard. They really busted themselves, busted their ass and tried to find out what they were capable of. And when you see the impact of that and what kind of uh, what it took from them, you realize that it is worth it. You know, you can't really just like live in the now and focus on like what how comfortable you are in a situation. You have to really push yourself in order to understand what you're made of uh, and what you can do. So I'd say that that's been the most inspirational for me. Um, but in terms of great answer. I love it. Yeah. Of course, my last biography I read was the biography of water. Oh. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> like, totally blew my mind, but. All right. Well, know, add I, that one to I'm the like, list, Danny. I'm not reading those. Now I want to. <laughs> so. Um, so you mentioned that you had, for the most part, have bootstrapped, which, you know, I feel like in this day and age is like pretty rare for a tech company or quickly scaling tech company. Um, can you talk a little bit about just your path, you know, financially with funding and, and how you've sort of gone about it? Yeah. Um, so we were pretty much even almost still bootstrapped. We did take investment uh, two years ago, just before COVID hit. Um, but for the most part, all the way up until that, we were 100% bootstrapped. Um, and why we did that, I think, was because... I, I just didn't have the experience with investment. You know, I did have the experience selling Epic One into Dealer, which I didn't necessarily want to do, not because I didn't think Dealer was a great company, but just because I didn't want that singular Auto vertical focus. Yep. But I didn't have that choice, and I was afraid to lose that choice again. Um, and in situations where I had to like really make business cases to even hire a statistician, for example, I didn't want to be beholden to things that would hold us back. Yeah. So I just kept buffeting through without and, and finding ways to do it. You know, we are we always had the work. But what we didn't have was the extra capital to probably build the data platform sooner, which is what we would have done if we took investment sooner. 
So I do kind of wish we did take investment sooner, but um, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really an intentional choice other than to say like I I didn't have the experience with it to know that there are benevolent investors out there and it can really bolster and hasten, you know, your development clip yeah. where, you know, it really will save you a ton of time and that will be worth, you know, the money. Right. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good point because you, you, you know, either way you give something up, right? If you're mm -hmm. not taking investment, it's really time, right? And, mm -hmm. and if you do take investment, you're giving up some ownership, right? Which is scary, especially if you had experienced a sale already, right? And so um, I think, you know, one of the reasons we ask is just this, this conversation isn't something that a lot of founders talk about, I think, especially in Vermont of how they've funded their companies and why and, and sort of what they've given up to do it. And so looking ahead, you know, do you think that um, you'll revisit that again? Or are you sort of on a good trajectory just with revenue? I think we'd revisit it again. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a really positive experience and a worthwhile experience and the impact that it had on our product set was was more than worth it. Yeah, yeah. It's so important to sort of demystify this, go through all the, the financial, the intellectual, the emotional aspects of um, control and vision with mm -hmm. a company who's at the table because these are longer term relationships and not every investor is compatible with a team or a situation too. And, um, you've got some great ones. So yeah. good on, good on you for that. About the, uh, Burlington seems a bit on fire in terms of, uh, just the vibrancy of, of tech and founders and other companies. Like what's your lens? I mean, do you see that too? Yeah, you really, Gotta, I mean, credit a lot of kind of the the scene has changed since I first came on it. You know, I think the work you guys do here at Visa, the the work that you know Hula does, that has bolstered all of that, and I think it's brought to light the need for us to invest. You know, as a state in in technology companies and startups and and what that will do for the economy. So. That's been really great to see. Uh, it certainly wasn't like that nine years ago no, it when wasn't. I started. Yeah. Is it worth the trade-off? Because you're probably competing for employees to a different degree, but has the tide risen for all the boats, I guess is my question. Is that worth it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and we're, you're competing with, in, in this state, you're competing for talent no matter what. So um, I don't really mind if that competition is getting more fierce, um, I think that's good because then maybe it will in incent more people to move to the state and to want to, you know, collaborate here with across multiple different companies. Um, one of the downsides to being in the state when we were relocating people is that they said, well, I'd move there, but if it doesn't work out, where do I go? <laughs> right. Where do right. I work? And that's a good solution. Uh, I think it used to be the Union Street, Faraday, Ixus shuffle, right? You know, yeah. or a dealer and a few others, right? That yeah. they would all go, go around. But So one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I, I really think it's important to ask this, but I want to point out and, um, you know, identify the fact that it's, 
complete bullshit that only uh, women are asked this question typically. So I'm just going to call that out. Um, but as a somewhat new mom, I think I have the right to ask, which is <laughs> how has being a mom changed the way you run a company or changed you as an entrepreneur? Do you think that when you think about Danny pre-kids and Danny with kids, you know, have it has being a mom made you a better entrepreneur? Has it made it harder when you kind of sit back and look at that, what are your sort of takeaways? That's a hard question. Um, so it's probably worth it to mention that I had two kids at once. So having <laughs> right. twins is a bit of a different story. I don't think I could have made my life harder. And I mean that sincerely. Um, so that was... <laughs> a much bigger, bigger proposition uh, to take on. And I think I wasn't prepared, you know. I, I didn't realize how, how much work that was going to be. And it was around the time of the overlap of the pandemic hitting, us going majority remote. Taking on investors. Taking on investors. Those huge new companies. Growing as big as we did. And then we also got a massive um, contract at the time with a really big company. So I think it was just this whole, like, confluence that maybe made it a little bit harder for me having kids. I'm not going to lie. It made my life as a, as a CEO, it made my job a lot harder. Yeah. And more, it was just a time thing. Um, just There's only so many hours in the day. There are. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think that no matter even how much help you could get, it's still there are things that just need to be you. Right. And you get stretched really thin, and for a while you feel like you're probably not doing your job on either front as well as you should be. And it gets easier. You know, I think the first year was the hardest. Yeah. Um, second year, third year, you know, three and a half. So it starts to kind of level back out. And then that's when you start to see it pay back and into your perspective and the way that you understand kind of your role in what you're building, why you're building it. And the fact that, like, people are people. You yeah. know, I think people struggle with their own struggles. They have their daily lives that they're building um, and it helps you understand a little bit better how to facilitate that and how to work together on a bigger purpose and that I guess you focus less on just making payroll and keeping the company afloat financially and you start to realize you know it's more human than that right uh, and it's more complex than that right you know, like so it's not one-dimensional anymore of like are we making it or not it's more like this is messy. <laughs> you got to <laughs> embrace it. You got to embrace the mess because that's the one constant. Right. Um, and the more you lean into that, I think the more you relate to people and it can make you a better CEO, but it's it doesn't happen overnight. Right. Yeah. And I think owning that too, right? Recognizing that it's going to be messy. And um, I think having that open dialogue with your employees and the visibility into that, what that looks like, right, is is important and I think it impacts how employees come to work too because they you know they see you putting in 110% they're going to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Are they old enough to crunch numbers for you yet or maybe a couple years? <laughs> oh my god, you know they have the abacus toys and oh, 100%. Totally yeah. right. Pattern recognition <laughs> stuff, so yeah. Just keep it simple. Blocks and puzzles. That's yeah, all. no, I think, I mean, if it had Paw Patrol on it somewhere, then yeah, maybe, but uh, no, their, their tastes are very limited right now. <laughs> so um, 
this will be our, our last question before the magic wand that Sam will ask. Um, where do you want to take Gixus? I mean, what's your hope for it? Where's it, you know, five years from now, what's it look like? I want to transform the way enterprise organizations use data and understand data. I want it to upend the way data is currently adopted in companies and understood. I want it to kind of de demystify um, data as a medium um, and, and bring it to uh, this evolved state, if you will, where it becomes ubiquitous, it becomes accessible, and it's just part of that everyday lexicon of how people discuss their business and their strategic objectives that they're trying to achieve. Um, and I want to do it mainly through the kind of convergence of the the human element of the of the data science and the knowledge and the modeling and, and the technology component of how to, uh, let's say, automate and scale that to to service you know the data needs at an enterprise level. Sam, simple, huh? <laughs> wow. Um, well, I think Dave and I will be first and second in line for your autobiography when it comes out. <laughs> totally. We're like star truck, star struck teenagers here. This is awesome. Um, this is embarrassing. A little bit. That's why you kept your mask on. It I get is. It now. Yeah, I'm I get hiding hundred percent. Um, all right, Danny, uh, we are just getting ready to wrap up, which Dave and I are, I'm, I don't know what we're going to do. We have to just call it a day after this cause we can't possibly match it. Um, magic wand question. So if you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would you change? Um, I think I kind of already said that to come full circle would be to do more to incent big businesses to move into the state. I think I've heard a couple different perspectives on it. One is that it, we, they want, I think people want to prevent sprawl and they're worried about the impact of sprawl on, on the state. But I think if you go too hard in that direction, you can also prevent innovation. You can prevent uh, diversity. You can prevent um, the dynamic of collaboration and all of that in the way that it would impact the economy. I think is too detrimental to just say full bore, prevent sprawl, because we're an agribusiness and that's what we do as a state. Um, the other is housing, but I, I think that's a chicken and egg scenario. Um, bringing in big business would help to maybe fuel some of that. So mm -hmm. I think that big business helps to bring talent to the state that helps to bolster the economy. I, I think it's really critical that we are doing more um, to advance that initiative as a state. Are you going to run for office? No. <laughs> Damn it. Not yet. I heard not yet, um, right? Low probability on naturally introverted people running for public office. Oh, Although I, I kind of like the uh, the counterintuitive approach. So. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I love it. All right, keep building Nexus. <laughs> Danny, thank you so much for making time today and, and bearing with us. Thanks for having me. We love you, Danny. This is Miss Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. The series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Let's go look at the data and get back to work.